As we stand together, let's pray. God, we thank you that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Oh God, how we need your light, your illumination, your wisdom, your guidance. So open our hearts, open our minds, open our souls to receive your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Please, if you have a Bible with you or in front of you, turn with me to 1 John, and we'll be looking at chapter 2, verses 1 through 6 that Coleman read to us just a minute ago. If you're new to Christianity or perhaps less familiar with your Bible, sometimes it's confusing when we refer to 1 John, because John also wrote one of the Gospels, and those Gospels are at the beginning of the New Testament. Well, as the church started to grow and started to spread, the church started to show some early immaturities and heresies and weaknesses. And so John wrote a collection of letters to the church. And so towards the end of the New Testament, almost right before Revelation, which John also wrote, you'll find 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. We're going to be in these letters uh, last Sunday, today, and up until Advent. Last week, we looked at 1 John chapter 1, and in that chapter, John was pushing back against a heresy that said sin was irrelevant, that it was possible to attain such a position of spiritual maturity that you could be sinless. You didn't need to confess. You didn't need to talk about sin because you could become sinless. And John pushed back against that with these verses that we heard, 1 John 8, That if we say we have no sin, we what? Deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Press pause for a second. Remember that for John, truth is not just a moral concept or a a good trait to try to go after. Truth is a person. Truth is Jesus. And so John is saying, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth, double meaning there, wink, wink, is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then he said in verse 10, if we say we have no sin, we make him to be a liar and his word is not in us. So John states what should be obvious to all of us, which is this, we're all sinners. We're all natural born sinners. No one has to teach us how to sin. We do it quite well on our own without a whole lot of practice. No one has to teach a one-year-old or hypothetically a 37-year-old not to steal a cookie out of a cookie jar. We just do it really well. And to deny that is to call God a liar. Many of us know Romans 3.23 by heart that all have sinned and what? Fall short of the glory of God. All of us. All. (laughs) Fall short. Of the glory of God. So 1 John chapter 1 is a reminder to us of the offense of the gospel, that we're all sinners, and then the gloriously good news of the gospel, that God saves sinners, God forgives sinners, God cleanses us from all unrighteousness. John reminded us also that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And what God does is, through Christ, he shines upon us. And he shines within us, his blazing light. He exposes our sinfulness. He draws us to our knees in confession. And then in Christ, to quote Psalm 103, 
Verse 12, he removes our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west. So this gospel proclamation from last week should still be ringing in our ears. And if you ever feel abandoned by Christ, maybe just go back to 1 John 8, uh, 1.8. If you say you have no... He forgives you. He cleanses you. And with this ringing in our ears, we come now to chapter 2. And what I believe we'll see in these six verses are three lessons. God comes to us in kindness. God covers us in Jesus. And God calls us to obedience. So first, God comes to us in kindness. Look with me at the first half of the first verse of chapter 2. John writes, My little children... I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now we'll get to the second half of that sentence in just a minute, so that you may not sin, because that's a little tricky. But first, notice how John addresses us. This is a letter to the church. This is a letter to Christians. It's a letter to you and me. And of all the ways John could have chosen to address the church, he chooses this way to show us the kindness and the gentleness and the mercy of God. My little children, my little children, I don't know how you picture God in your mind. I don't know how you would say he looks at you when he comes to you to say something hard to you. But scripture is clear that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Psalm 145 teaches us that the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Yes, God hates sin. God is utterly holy, holy, holy. In him is no darkness at all, not even a shred of it. But in Christ, God comes to us in kindness. Remember John chapter 3, that famous verse, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Well, the next verse says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him we might be saved. So yes, he's going to shine his light. Yes, he's going to expose darkness. Yes, he takes sin more seriously than we can ever imagine. But in Christ, he comes to us in kindness. And he says to us, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. We're all sinners We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. John made that clear in chapter 1. And in that chapter, he was pushing back against a heresy that said sin is irrelevant because we're sinless. Now we get to chapter 2, and he wants to make sure we don't swing too far the other way and say, well then, sin must be irrelevant because we're forgiven anyways, and so we can sin all we want. He brings balance. He brings biblical clarity here. And he says, yes, God comes to us in kindness. And he calls us to renounce sin. To renounce sin. Now, to be clear, John is not saying that we should be perfect or that we can be perfect or sinless. What John is saying is that we shouldn't be complacent because complacency towards sin is equal to embracing darkness, to saying, you can come into my house, Lord. You can come into the living room and to the bedrooms and to the garage and to my closets. You can even have my Christmas sweaters, 
but you can't come into this one cabinet in my kitchen. Complacency towards sin is equal to embracing darkness, and it's equal to hiding in the garden. And Jesus says, I see you. I see it. Give it up. Give it to me. Because just like we're all natural-born sinners, we're also all natural-born hiders. We're really good at hiding our sin, at covering our tracks. And we learned this from a young age. Remember when I was 10 or 11 years old, growing up in Florida, one summer I got to tag along with our church's youth group, and we got to go on a tubing trip down one of these rivers in Florida. Remember how beautiful it was. I remember how fun it was to go tubing with the teenagers in my church. I remember how hot it was outside. I remember how cold the water was. It felt good on a hot day, but it was cold water. And I got home that night, and my wristwatch was dead. And so I assumed, because I was 10 or 11, that it was dead because my watch battery must be cold. So with my parents out of the house the next day, I did what any 10 or 11-year-old boy might do, is I unscrewed the back of my watch, I took the watch battery out, and I put it in the microwave. Now I knew the last thing you want is a battery that's underdone, and the last thing you want for sure is a battery that's overdone. So I figured, let's just give this a good 30 seconds or so. So three, zero, start, two seconds in, fireball in the rectory microwave. Quickly stopped the microwave, grabbed a cup of water, heroically extinguished the flame, and I covered my tracks. I threw the battery away, threw the watch away, cleaned up all the water, put the cup away, did everything I could to cover my tracks. And then my parents came home, and they took one step inside the house, and I remember my mom saying these words, what's that smell? I had covered my tracks so well, they never knew what happened. They never noticed the little char-broiled brown circle in the microwave dish. I really hope my mom isn't watching this live stream. But God comes to us and he says, my little children, what's that smell? And confession and repentance is humbly kneeling before our Father and saying, here's what that smell is. And the amazing thing about God is he knows what the smell is anyways before he even asks us. Remember our gospel reading just a minute earlier that Mike read to us. Jesus is walking on the road with his disciples. His disciples are having an argument about who's the greatest. And they're having this supposedly out of earshot of Jesus. Jesus asks them later on, hey guys, my paraphrase, what are you talking about? Mark says they kept silent. A, they were embarrassed. B, they thought they could hide it from Jesus. Jesus then lovingly and firmly calls them out on it. We pray this every Sunday. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open. And what's next? All desires known and from you no secrets are hid. You all just passed Anglican essentials. Well done. And this reality is at once comforting, that God knows us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He sees in to that locked cabinet in our kitchen. It's comforting and it's terrifying. And that's why it's such good news that God covers us in Jesus. Look with me now at verse 1, 
the second half of verse 1. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Praise God that right now, at this moment, right now, at this moment, you and I who have put our trust in Jesus Christ have an advocate before the Father, and our advocate is none other than Jesus Christ himself. Before the throne of God above, you and I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for you and me, right now, by name, before God the Father. Our hope, then, is not in our sinlessness, because we're always sinful. Our merit is not in our performance, because we can never be good enough. Our only hope and our only merit lie in the fact that Jesus looks at us and he says, she's mine. He's mine. And he's not only our advocate and he's not only our intercessor, but John says he is the propitiation for our sins. Let's just take a moment and explore what this word means, propitiation. It means that Jesus himself is the full atonement for all of our sins. Notice how John doesn't say Jesus makes propitiation. Jesus provides propitiation. No, Jesus is propitiation. Wrapped up in Jesus, in his work on the cross, and on Easter Sunday, what Jesus did was he fulfilled the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament. John wrote in the first chapter, his blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Jesus is. Jesus is our full atonement. And it also means that Jesus bore the wrath of God, the punishment upon sin in our place. We know that God is holy. We know that God hates sin. And we know that sin demands God's judgment and God's justice. And Jesus' death then on the cross results in the covering of our sin and in the satisfaction of all the punishment that God had to pour out upon sin, that 100% of the punishment that sin deserved was 100% poured upon Jesus on the cross, and he 100% paid for it and left it in the grave. And that's why we can say there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ, because Jesus took it all, and it's all gone, and it's all spent on him in our place. That's what propitiation means. John Stott writes this. I think this is helpful. Christian propitiation is an appeasement of the wrath of God by the love of God through the gift of God. The initiative is not taken by us, but by God himself in sheer unmerited love. This is not some fancy doctrine. <laughs> this is love displayed to us in Christ. And what's even more amazing is that the value of this propitiation is ongoing, even now. The work on the cross is finished. It's done once for all. We say this in our liturgy most Sundays. Alleluia, Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed once for all upon the cross. It's done. It's finished. It's not repeated. It's not repeatable. But this one sacrifice has eternal value. So that every day 
every day, as you and I sin and fall short of the glory of God, we have the assurance that at all times, Jesus, our great high priest, righteous Jesus, perfect Jesus, is actively covering us, actively advocating for us, actively interceding for us. So propitiation is the application of our salvation, and it's done by Jesus at all times. God comes to us in kindness, God covers us in Jesus, and God calls us to obedience. Look with me now at verse 3. John writes, and by this we know we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. Now it's interesting that John is what we call a circular thinker. He's a circular writer. He's not linear like some other authors in the Bible and in the New Testament. And so we see that now because when we're going to read the last half of five, it sounds a lot like verse three. So John's employing a preacher's trick here. He's saying the same thing several different times in different ways, but it's basically the same thing. So last half of five, by this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. John doesn't pull punches here. In chapter one, he said that if we say we have no sin, we're basically saying God is a liar. But now in our chapter this morning, chapter two, verse four, he says that if we say we know God, but don't keep his commandments, we're a liar. To quote the ancient theological truism here, John is saying the proof is in the pudding. And we have to get this whole obedience thing right then because it's so easy to go wrong here. So let me just offer one quick clarification into this call to obedience, and it's this, that we obey because we're loved, not so that we're loved. We obey because we're loved, not so that we're loved. There's a major difference here, and it makes all the difference in the world, that when we know we're loved by God, when we know that because of the blood of Jesus, we have been cleansed from all unrighteousness, and when we know that we're always and forever in Christ, and over time, the more we know this, head and heart, and the more the Holy Spirit does his sanctifying work in us, the more we obey. Obedience is the fruit of our salvation, not the means of it. Obedience shows that we're in Christ. It doesn't cause us to be in Christ. We keep God's commandments because we delight in God, not to make God delight in us. We keep God's commandments because Christ is in us, not because we're working to stay in. My son, Jacob, my adorable little boy, Jacob, is learning how to obey. And he does a pretty good job most of the time. Not all the time, but most of the time. And one of the things Jacob is learning how to do is obey when we ask him to put his own pants on. It's a hard thing for a two-year-old boy to learn. After the last service, I won't tell you who told me this, but someone said it's also hard for 75-year-olds to learn, but <laughs> their identity will remain anonymous. So we're trying to get Jacob to learn how to put his pants on, and we love Jacob, and we're proud of him for trying. 
half the time he puts his pants on backwards. Half the time he puts them on inside out. Sometimes he puts both legs down the same hole. Now, we still love Jacob, and we're proud of him for trying. And the fact that he's trying shows some outward sign that he's growing up into a young man. Now, fast forward 15 years from now. If Jacob is still having a hard time putting his pants on, we'll still love him just the same. But we will see outwardly that there is still some room for growth. Our success rate in obedience does not change the degree to which God loves us. God always fully loves us in Christ. Our obedience then is not so that he'll love us. Our obedience is because he loves us and the Lord helps us to grow up. John presents this theology of obedience to us because he learned it straight from Jesus. Remember earlier in in John's gospel, chapter 15, John quoted Jesus saying this. Jesus said, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So now this morning, John writes in chapter 2, verse 6, that if we abide in Jesus, we ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now, of course, we can't be perfect like Jesus. So this next point is important. That since we can't be perfect like Jesus... We walk then as Jesus did in the full knowledge of our Heavenly Father's unwavering love for us. And this knowledge propels us to obey. God's Spirit causes the fruit of obedience to grow in us. And Jesus' intercession and advocacy and propitiation give us unshakable assurance when we fail. Now, I want to close by considering then how this looks practically in our lives when we embrace these truths from 1 John chapter 2. Last week, Mary took us to the Old Testament and reminded us of Isaiah's response in Isaiah 6 when he not only repented of his own sinfulness, but he repented of the sins of those he lived amongst. And so I'd like for us to consider another figure in the Old Testament briefly, And look at David's response. Because when confronted with his own sinfulness, when God's light had revealed profound darkness in David's soul, when he had come face to face with it, he didn't run, he didn't hide, he didn't excuse, he didn't minimize, he didn't coddle it. He repented. And he wrote Psalm 51. Here's some of what David prayed in that psalm. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So through the stunning words of the prophet Nathan, who bravely and courageously confronted David with his sin. Through Nathan, God comes to David in kindness and exposes his sin. And led by the Spirit of God, David confessed. He repented 
And then he prayed that God would cover his sin. Verse 9 of Psalm 51, David prayed, Hide your face from my sin. Blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. God came to him in kindness. God covered his sins by grace. And then David prayed for a heart to obey. Towards the end of the psalm, David prayed, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. How amazing is that? That even in our repentance, even in our turning away from sin and turning back to Jesus, God uses our repentance to preach the gospel to ourselves and to anyone who's watching. David would also write in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, Search me, O God. Know my heart, try me, know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me, any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. I've been reading through the Chronicles of Narnia again with my youngest daughter, Callie. And we got through the whole series and now we're back to some of her favorites. And so we're reading through the Voyage of the Dawn Treader again. And if you've ever read this book, you'll know there's a character in this book named Eustace. And he arrives in Narnia kind of by accident. They don't really want him there. And he's, he's a pretty tough cookie at the beginning of this book. Kind of full of himself and angry and bitter and mad. Doesn't want to be there. Wants to go back to England. Well, one time they're on this island, an enchanted island. And Eustace turns into a dragon. And he lives the life of a dragon for a week or two. And it's miserable for him to be covered up in this dark suit To not be himself, it's painful. And one night he is at the end of himself and he's weeping and he awakens to Aslan saying to Eustace, who at that point is still a dragon, follow me. And they come to an open space and the light of Aslan is, is providing light somehow. And Eustace realizes that the dragon that he is is just a suit And so he he unzips it and crawls out, but he's still a dragon. He does it again. He's still a dragon. He does it again. He's still a dragon. And then Aslan says to him, you need to let me do it. And so all Eustace does is he lays down. And Aslan comes and removes the dragon suit. And he's made new again. And then Aslan gives him new clothes again. And then Eustace is never quite the same. C.S. Lewis says once in a while he had relapses, but he was new. What a picture of grace. What a picture of how forgiveness works. That it's not us unzipping ourselves. That it's not us peeling the hardness off. It's not us doing anything. It's us saying, here I am. I'm done hiding. I can't do anything else, God. And God in his tender mercy and God in his strength pulls the hardness off, peels the darkness away, and clothes us in his righteousness. It's exhausting trying to live a life in which you're always covering your tracks or covering up your mistakes or hiding from the light or hiding from the truth. It's miserable and it's a fearful way to live. 
we can either hide from Jesus or we can hide in Jesus. And the gospel calls us to do what Eustace did in the voyage of the Don Treader and stand before the blazing light of Jesus and allow him to do his work. Search me, O God. See if there be any grievous way in me, David prayed. And those prayers that David prayed by faith were all pointing forward and they were all perfectly fulfilled by Jesus. He is our cleansing. He is our perfect obedience. He is the truth. And he is the way everlasting. And God keeps coming to us. He keeps coming and coming and coming in kindness. And he keeps covering us in Jesus. And he keeps calling us to obedience. May we be a people who say yes to Jesus and no to complacency. Amen? Let's stand together and pray. Oh, Jesus, thank you. Thank you, thank you for being our advocate, our intercessor, our propitiation. Thank you for shining your light. And we say more, Lord, more of your light. Search us, know us, see if there be any grievous way in us. Come into all the dark places in our hearts. Draw us to our knees in confession. Draw us to Christ. We pray. Amen.